it's fascinating to consider the history of the helmet of the football player. If you were to go on the internet and see some of the original pictures of a football helmet, quite different from what you see today. Pretty much it was just a helmet that kind of covered the eyes and the head and had little ear flaps. Compare that today when you watch an NFL football game or even a college football game or even when the little kids are playing football in the kind of helmets that are now worn today. Lots of money is invested in having a good football helmet. And now they have visors, now they have the, the guard for your mouth, and they have technology where you got earpieces in them, etc. So football helmets have come a long way. And one of the reasons they've come a long way is because the game of football has realized that the head is important to the game of football. Uh, you don't want a concussed football player. Uh, you, uh, in this day and age where the football game has become rather violent, so to speak, I remember there was a player who graduated from USC, and he was a running back, strong, built, 230 pounds, really powerful. And they asked him, you know, once he got drafted and he was playing in the NFL, what was it like running against the defenses in the NFL? And he said it was like running into a brick wall. And this was a young man who was powerful, who was strong, who weighed about 230 pounds. But he said when he got the ball and ran, trying to get that touchdown, it was like running against a defense that was like a brick wall. When you look at the game of football, um, some of us enjoy it, some of us don't. But it has become very aggressive. Again, when you kind of look back a few years, uh, there were football players who were known as headhunters. Uh, there's a particular football player that comes to my mind, but he was excellent at that. Uh, so he wasn't look, looking to tackle you at your ankles. He wasn't looking to hit you at your knees uh, or even in your chest. Uh, he wanted to go for your head, and he was called a headhunter. And uh, football has come to realize that that's a dangerous thing, having these powerful football players hitting each other in the head. So they've come up with these fancy helmets to try to negate that. But we realize how important the head is in the game of football. If your quarterback gets a concussion, he's of no value. Doesn't matter how great his arm is, doesn't matter how great his legs are, etc. The mind has to be protected, the head has to be protected. And even in warfare, people in war understand that it's crucial to have a helmet. There's certain parts of your body that you can do without. But I've never seen a warrior, I've never seen a person whose head was cut off and they're still functioning. You can lose a hand, you can lose an arm, you can lose a leg, but, but the head you cannot function without. And so Paul understood this when it came to spiritual warfare. He understood the importance of the helmet, that it's a necessary piece 
that makes up the whole armor of God. And what we've been doing the last few Sundays is looking at the whole armor of God, piece by piece by piece. And today we come to the fifth piece of armor, the helmet. And as we approach uh, this portion of verse 17, I want us to do so from the subject armed with the helmet of salvation. And I want to take Paul's phrase and take the helmet of salvation and just put it under the microscope, so to speak, so that we can see certain observations about what Paul is saying in verse 17. And please observe, first of all, the exhortation concerning the helmet of salvation. A command, a mandate is given concerning the helmet of salvation. And before Paul issues that command, he says, and. And I know for us that's an insignificant word, but the word and is important because it's connecting these last two pieces of armor that are in verse 17 with the previous pieces of armor that were mentioned in verses 14 through 16. Paul has talked about the belt of truth. He's talked about the breastplate of righteousness. He talked about the gospel shoes. And last week we saw he spoke of the shield of faith. But Paul says, and there's other pieces of armor. The, the emphasis in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is not only is there a war going on, and some Christians seem to be oblivious to that, but there's a war going on, but the emphasis is on standing firm in the midst of that war. Some people are lollygagging. They're on the sideline. They're doing other things. They don't even realize a battle is going on, and that battle is ultimately between God and Satan, but the battle includes Christian people. The battle includes demons, etc., and so Paul says, if we're going to stand firm when it's all said and done, then we have to put on the full armor of God. And he takes the time to itemize the full armor of God. It's not just enough to know a few pieces that make up the armor of God, but we need to know each and every piece and how that relates to us in our walk with God and in our warfare that we are involved in as Christians. And so the belt of truth, emphasizing truth, practical truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, and Paul goes on and on, and now he mentions one more piece of armor. Don't get comfortable thinking that if I'm having truth in my life or righteousness characterizes my life or if I'm living a life of faith, that that is all that I need. That is not the case at all. Each piece of armor is essential. Each piece of armor is critical. And so Paul says, I need to tell you that there's two more pieces of armor. And then he gives a command concerning that armor that he's focusing in on, the helmet of salvation. He says, take, take the helmet of salvation. Now, if you are using the New American Standard Bible, you might be familiar with the word take. 
Paul said early in verse 11 that, well, in, in verse uh, 13, that we are to take up the full armor of God. And also in verse 16, he says, taking the shield of faith. And you might think that Paul is just using the same word, but in reality, he's not. He's giving a command to receive, to accept, to take, and to embrace, and to grasp for oneself. That was not the idea when he used the word at other times. So when it comes to this piece of armor, Paul gives a command. And you might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, with the other four pieces of armor, he never gave a command. The last command he gave in our text was, stand firm. And he says, stand firm. And the way that you can stand firm is by having girded your loins with truth. It's by having put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's by having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's by taking the shield of faith. But he didn't command them in those situations. He just emphasized to them that if you're going to stand firm, this is what you have to do. These are the actions. But now, he says, I'm not going to just refer to by an action. I'm giving you a command. He's emphasizing, you got to do this. He doesn't want it to slip by us how important this piece of armor is. All of the pieces of armor are important, but it's like Paul is saying, wake up when it comes to the helmet of salvation. Take it, receive it, accept it, make it a part of your life. And the picture is that it's something to be received. As if a gift is given. And and the reason that helps us is because we don't work to manufacture this armor. As Paul has said on two occasions, it's the armor of what? Of God. God is the source of this armor. He's the one who provides it to his Christian warriors, his Christian soldiers. God has gone out of his way to provide these pieces of armor. And Paul is now saying it's our responsibility to take this piece of armor. And so the question I ask you, if you're a child of God, you're in a war. Have you taken, received, accepted the helmet of salvation from God? Have you taken this gracious piece of equipment that God offers you so that you can be successful in your walk with God? So that when all is said and done, it can be said of you, you're standing. You're standing, therefore. That's the exhortation. It's not marvel at this piece of armor. It's not observe it, but actually take, receive, accept, welcome this wonderful piece of armor. As we continue to look at this phrase 
and take the helmet of salvation and put it under the microscope. The second thing I want us to see and observe is the interpretation of the helmet of salvation. Exactly what is meant when Paul says the helmet of salvation. We know what a helmet is, but what's the helmet of salvation? What does Paul mean by taking a piece of armor that a Roman soldier would use, and now he's saying, make this a piece of armor for the Christian soldier? Paul is mentioning a physical weapon, helmet, but now he associates with that a spiritual weapon. And so even though the idea of a helmet might be straightforward, the idea of a helmet of salvation is a different story. And, and, and I want to stress something that I really haven't stressed as we've gone through the pieces of armor. That these pieces of armor are not just mentioned in Ephesians. Some of them are actually mentioned in the book of Isaiah. And they're mentioned not in reference to the people of God, but to God himself. Sometimes we have this picture of God that he's kind and loving and gracious, and all of that is true. But we don't see God as holy and righteous. And we definitely don't see God the way that Isaiah presented him when he says God is a warrior. Uh, the people of God should have been doing something in, Isaiah day, in Isaiah's day, and they weren't doing it. So God says, I will do something about it. I'll become a warrior. And you don't have to turn to Isaiah 59, verse 17, but let me read the verse for you. And as I read it, just tune in to some of the armor that's mentioned in Ephesians. And it says, he that is God put on righteousness like a breastplate. The breastplate of righteousness. And a helmet of salvation. On his head. That's what we're talking about now. And he put on garments. What kind of garments? Garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. I don't know if you caught some of those items that we've been seeing in the book of Ephesians. A helmet of salvation. The, the idea of garments, having things strapped to us. And God has done that. And also a breastplate. Remember those, that vital area of the body that needs to be protected, those organs that needs to be protected. God has put on a breastplate of righteousness. And the believer is to do the same. So as Paul is writing this verse, in the back of his mind, is God the divine warrior. And now he's addressing Christian warriors. Christians who are on the battlefield, who need to take action. Who are not just tiptoeing through the tulips. Who are not just having a good time worshiping God and enjoying God. But Christians who are on the battlefield. Who are soldiers in the army of Jesus Christ. And Paul mentions... That God is a warrior. And in a real sense, Christians are to be warriors in this battle that 
is taking place. Now, the helmet. You know, we talked about a football helmet. We've seen the importance of that. I don't think there's anybody who watches the game of football and says, oh, you don't need a, a, a helmet. Now, I remember as kids, we used to play tackle football. We were stupid. <laughs> we didn't have on equipment, didn't have on helmets, and some people suffered the price. And, and so, you know, you can go with the peewees, seven and eight years old, their helmet is almost bigger than their body because everybody knows how important the head is. Paul, when he talks about these different pieces of armor, he has a Roman soldier in mind. Even though God, the divine word, is in the back of his mind, he's thinking about a Roman soldier. And one of the things that a Roman soldier had, one of his pieces of equipment, was a helmet. Literally, the word helmet just means lying around. It has the idea of something wrapped around one's head. But when you put that in the context of a battle or a war or a fight, it referred to a, a helmet. And the helmet was a padded metal bowl with guards. Sometimes it protected the neck, sometimes the ears, etc. But it was basically made out of iron. And bronze was poured on that iron, and then uh, there was leather that lined it. So we don't need to know all of the important details of a helmet in that day. What's critical to recognize is that the helmet was for protective reasons. A soldier wore a helmet, a well-made helmet, in order to protect his head. And it said that if you were to try to penetrate that uh, helmet, it was like taking an axe to someone's head or helmet to penetrate it. No, it would take severe effort and strength to penetrate the helmet. And Paul is picking up on that terminology. He says just like the Roman soldier had a helmet to protect his head, the Christian has a helmet to protect his or her head. But when it comes to the Christian, Paul is not stressing helmet. He's stressing salvation. He says, take the helmet which consists of salvation. For the Roman soldier, it was a literal helmet. For the Christian, our helmet is not literal, it's spiritual, it's salvation. So I don't go somewhere, I don't go to the Christian bookstore and look for a helmet to put on as I walk around the world. No, instead I'm putting on salvation. And most of us are familiar with that term salvation, but typically when we think about salvation, we think about it in the past tense. We think about salvation in the sense that I've been saved from the penalty of my sins. And what a marvelous blessing that is. To be able to say, I've been saved from the, the penalty of my sins. That I've been forgiven. And, and if that ever gets tired to you, if that ever causes you to yawn and get bored, 
May God have mercy on your sick soul. To, to, to know that I have been forgiven, past, present, and future sin, all of my sins have been forgiven. That is an astounding and marvelous truth. But Paul is not saying take the helmet of salvation, which means your forgiveness of sins, your past sins, because he assumes they're Christians. He's not writing to pagans. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to those who are the children of God. He, he began the book by saying and proclaiming to them that you are saints. Not what? Not ain'ts. You're saints. You're not ain'ts. And so he knows that they're believers in Jesus Christ. So he, he's not saying take salvation in the sense of being forgiven your sin. That's not what he's talking about at all. And that would be to misunderstand this helmet of salvation. What Paul is saying, take, receive, accept, welcome salvation in its fullest sense, in all of its dimensions, in all of its aspects. Salvation from the standpoint of past, present, and future. Paul is using the term salvation to encompass everything that relates to being saved by God. And not only from the standpoint of what happened at the moment of salvation, but what is happening now as I seek to live my life for God and what will happen in the future. Paul says, take salvation in its broadest sense and, and put it on your head as a helmet. And, and what he's stressing to us is just how important understanding the idea of salvation is. You, you won't find one term only for salvation in the Bible. Instead, there are multiple terms. There are terms like redeemed or redemption. Reconciliation, justification, sanctification, propitiation. You know that the word where all the spit comes out. Propitiation, but it's a marvelous word. Glorification, union with Christ. My friends, our salvation is so rich, so deep, so vast, that one word cannot capture all of it. There are these great Terms that reveal the, the deepness, the richness, the depths of our salvation. And, and what Paul is saying, I want you to take that and, and wear it as a helmet of salvation. I don't want you just to simply look at salvation through the lens that you've been saved from your sins or you've been saved from the penalty of sin. No, I want you to see salvation in its broad sense. I want you to grow up and mature and realize that salvation is more than just simply, I'm saved. What does that encompass? What does that involve? And so Paul is talking about spiritual salvation. That's our helmet, not some metal uh, skull cap that was prepared for a soldier. That's not our salvation. Our helmet is a Salvation that is rich, that is full, that is 
cannot be exhausted. So I want us to understand that we don't misinterpret the helmet of salvation. If you think the helmet of salvation is just making sure you got saved, then you're going to be a disaster on the battlefield for the Lord. If all you're thinking when you hear, take the helmet of salvation, is that I've been saved. Well, praise the Lord, I've been saved, and that's great, that's marvelous. But there's so much more to it in taking the helmet of salvation. And so it's important that we interpret it correctly, that the helmet of salvation is spiritual salvation in all of its dimensions and dynamics and in its wonderful concepts as presented in the Bible. It's basically inexhaustible when you think about salvation in whatever angle you choose to look at it. Paul says, take that salvation that is marvelous, that is wonderful, that is great, so great as of, take it as protection for your head so that you will be successful when Satan and his dominions come and try to decapitate you, and try to mortify you and kill you. If you got the helmet of salvation on you, that serves as protection. And I realize some of you are thinking about mental health issues, etc. Paul is thinking about the whole comprehensive idea, how the mind is important to the Christian. And the mind, in order for the Christian to realize that it has to be protected, and what protects it is not you going to see a therapist. What protects it is not you sitting down with your pastor. That, that might help in some way. But what protects your mind is salvation. Not being saved from sin, but understanding all of the three tenses of salvation. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I'm saved, being saved from the power of sin. I will be saved from the presence of sin. And so we have to understand as the people of God that to avoid being concussed by Satan and his demonic beings, that the helmet, which is salvation, has to be put on our head. We have to take it and put it on our heads. Now the last thing I want to do as we take this phrase and take the helmet of salvation and put it under a microscope, I want us to see the utilization of the helmet of salvation. How do you and I, as Christians, as Christian soldiers, take the helmet of salvation? What does that mean? We hear the words take there's a responsibility, there's an obligation, there's a mandate, the helmet of salvation, we understand what that means, but, but, but how do we do that? What does that look like in our day-to-day walk with God? Well, I want us to see two things here. To take the helmet of salvation is to grow in your objective knowledge of biblical salvation. And I know that's a mouthful. But let me say it again, to to grow in our objective, and by objective, I'm not talking about what we experience or what we feel, but what we think, to grow in our objective knowledge 
of biblical salvation. You and I must have knowledge of what the Bible says is salvation and not what we think it is. We need to grow in our biblical knowledge. We need to increase in our understanding of salvation. We need to take classes and pass each class. So I'm gaining more understanding and knowledge and information about salvation. If you're a member of Fairview, you might remember that we talked about salvation in the new members class. We got one paragraph devoted to salvation. It's part of our statement of faith. That ain't enough. That ain't enough. It might be good enough to get you to be a member, but ain't enough to help you in the war. And some of you were part of Wednesday night Bible study. We studied the doctrine of salvation. We called it soteriology. We didn't use a big word to impress anybody, but to explain what this doctrine is all about. And we spent many months on the doctrine of salvation. That ain't enough if you attended every session. If you got a notebook in your house somewhere filed, that ain't enough. Some of you have gone to LABTS. You've gone to Bible college. You've gone to seminary. And you think, oh, I've taken classes that explain the doctrine of salvation. That ain't enough. That is not enough. Our salvation is so great, so vast, so deep, that it's going to take the rest of our lifetime here on earth to try to grasp and understand it. So all of us have room to grow in our understanding of biblical salvation. Now, if all you know with regards to biblical salvation is that Jesus loves me, for the Bible told me so, then you're going to be at the mercy of the devil and his demonic beings. If you're barely out of nursery school when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, you better take classes at an advanced speed so that you can stand firm having taken the, the, the helmet of salvation. And, and I'm not pointing a finger at any of us. Whether you're a student or a teacher, we all need to grow in this wonderful idea of what salvation truly means. And, and Satan wants us to be ignorant of our great salvation. This book, all 66 books of the Bible, has a lot to say about salvation from Genesis to Revelation. Do you think God moved individuals to write his word just so we can pick out one or two verses and now we are sufficient when it comes to our knowledge of salvation? It's great that you can say, for by grace I've been saved through faith. That's great, but that ain't enough. There needs to be growth and increase. And that's not going to happen automatically. It means that the Christian has a responsibility to take, to receive, to welcome, to accept 
and to grow in this particular and meaningful area of our salvation. I've said it before. Somebody wants to be a doctor, they don't just go to nursery school and say uh, to their kindergarten teacher, I want to be a doctor, and they become a doctor. <laughs> they they got to keep going to school and keep going to school and keep going to school. They got to spend money, money, money. You look at these professional athletes. I, I look at my daughter. Some people think all she did when she ran was just got on the track and ran. That you didn't have to do anything. It's not like when you're in grade school and in middle school. You know, you want to race? Let's race. But you're a professional track. You got to train. Hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. Some of you are teachers. You had to go get your credentials, etc. And somehow we have allowed Satan to delude us into thinking that when it comes to growing in our knowledge, objective knowledge of salvation, that it comes automatically, I don't have to do anything. And, and if that's our attitude, we're not going to be protected from the flaming missiles of the devil. We're not going to be able to resist the schemes of the devil. He's got us where we want, where he wants us to be. Don't study doctrine. That's boring. Who needs doctrine? You need it. I need it. It's the foundation of Christian living. Read the books of the New Testament. Read Ephesians. First three chapters, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. It's not until chapter four he said, okay, now in light of that doctrine, this is how you are to live. I wish God would just zap me and slap me and the knowledge, full knowledge of salvation would be mine. But it ain't so. It ain't so in most areas of life. And so if we're going to take the helmet of salvation, it means to grow in our objective knowledge of biblical salvation. But not only that, the other thing, and this is what I'll close with, it also means that if we are going to take the helmet of salvation, it means to grow in our subjective knowledge of biblical salvation. What's good for the head is also good for the heart. So this biblical truth that informs my mind must end up in my heart and transform my life. So objective knowledge is important, but so is subjective knowledge. Taking biblical truth and relating it and practicing it in our daily lives. And so, it's how a subjective knowledge of salvation means that you are experiencing assurance of salvation. Experiencing it. It's one thing to sing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. But is that what you're experiencing? It's one thing to Read that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God and the love of Christ. 
But is that what you're experiencing in your heart? Assurance salvation is critical to Christian living. If you're worried day in and day out about whether or not you're saved, there'll be no emphasis on growing as a Christian. Assurance of salvation. You need to know that you know that you know that you know that you are a child of God. And you remember when we went through 1 John. John says, I'm writing these things that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us to know and be certain that we're going to heaven. I'm not talking about some kind of false assurance because you're a church member or because you give to the church or you try to do good deeds, etc. Some people think they're saved because they're doing good deeds. I'm not talking about false assurance. Satan would love to give you false assurance. He would love for you to be a member of Fairview and bust hell wide open. You need to understand the biblical grounds for assurance of salvation, like what John mentioned, keeping God's commandments. Are you obeying the word? Practicing righteousness, loving one another. Yeah, loving one another is an evidence of genuine salvation. He he didn't say hating one another. In that case, we're all going to heaven. But loving one another. And not practicing sin. So a subjective knowledge of salvation is and means that you're experiencing the assurance of salvation. But also, let me add on to that, a subjective knowledge of salvation means you are working out your salvation. Your own salvation. You're taking the command that Paul gives to the Christians in Philippi, in Philippians 2.12, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. Work out. God has saved you. He's done a work in your life. Now work that out so that it's a reality in your day-to-day walk with God. Work it out with fear and trembling. That is, there ought to be evidence in my life that I'm being liberated and freed from the power of sin. Before I got saved, I was a slave of sin. But now that I'm saved, I should be experiencing the power of sin. God's power in my life giving me victory over sin. I'm not perfect, but my life ought to be giving some evidence that I'm being saved from the power of sin that I'm being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. People are starting to see Jesus in me because I'm experiencing the power of God over sin. As we said on Wednesday night, this can't happen without killing sin. Are you putting sin to death? A subjective knowledge of salvation means you're longing for the day when you experience salvation to its fullest. Longing for the day when you experience ultimate salvation. Yes, when you got saved, 
You were free from the penalty of sin. You were rescued from the penalty of sin. Now that you're saved, you're being rescued from the power of sin. But praise God, the day is coming where the believer will be liberated and freed and rescued from the very presence of sin. Justification, sanctification, but ultimately glorification. Where you and I will be in the presence of Jesus Christ and we will sin no more. But, but, but when you are growing in your subjective knowledge of biblical salvation, you're longing for what one person says, you're longing for heaven, you're longing for home. I know as I get older, as I'm old, as I get older, Sometimes I don't know if I'm really longing for heaven. Sometimes I'm thinking, though, maybe I want to stay around a little bit longer here on earth. And I have to have God deal with me. Because some of us have made earth so precious. Got the home, got the things that we worked all of our life to get. Why would I want to leave it now? I worked 40 years for that swimming pool. I worked... 50 years for that car. I I got the money. It's collecting moth. No, the moth is eating the rust. All of that. And and heaven is a foreign thought to us. And I remember some of the old folks used to sing in the church that I grew up that was pastored by Marlene's dad. They would say, oh, oh, I went to see him. Look upon his face. There to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares all pass. Home at last. Ever to rejoice. The, the, the person who is growing in his subjective knowledge of biblical salvation, longs for heaven. Longs to experience the fullness of their salvation, where they're freed from sin to sin no more. So the utilization of the helmet of salvation means to make sure that both in our objective knowledge and subjective knowledge of salvation. We are growing. We are increasing. So take advantage of opportunities to study salvation in greater detail. Pick up a good book. Let somebody recommend a good book for you to read on salvation so that you're growing in in this Salvation that you are to take as a helmet and it will protect you from Satan and his demonic companions. Now, preaching through this series has been a challenge for me and, and I thought, no, what would Satan want for Fairview? I do hope you understand he does have a desire for Satan. 
Satan does have a desire for Fairview. There's something he would love for each member of Fairview to experience. And I think one thing is that Satan would just love it if we would be of the mindset that there's not a war going on. That things just really aren't as bad as this preacher is trying to make it, or as bad as Paul is saying. Satan would just love it to keep us ignorant of the war so that we don't do anything with regards to it. So that Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, just another portion in the Bible. It's like reading in the beginning, God has nothing to do with life. And I think the other thing is, even if we came to a realization that there's a war going on, he would love it for us to disobey the command to put on the full armor of God. To be ignorant of the pieces, but just to let the pieces be there. And some of us, we glory, we enjoy, oh, that's the belt of truth. Oh, that's the shield of faith. And we talk about it and we study it, etc. But we don't make it a part of our life. So it's been a week since last Sunday. And we talked about the shield of faith. Have you taken that shield of faith? Are you growing? Are you taking advantage to trust God in a greater way? And now you learn about this helmet of salvation. Do you think that what you've heard in my 40, 45 minutes is enough? Satan will love for you to leave. Thank you all. The helmet of salvation. And do nothing with it at all. May God help us. Not just to hear his word. But to heed his word. Let's pray together. Father, grant us grace. Grant us grace. To hear your word. And to heed your word. We've sung so much about the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. And the only proper response is to give ourselves to you, to surrender our lives to you, to live life the way that you want us to live. Thank you in your marvelous grace. You have told us in your word that there is a war going on that we have an adversary in the, in the devil who's seeking whom he may devour. Thank you for telling us who our true enemies are. It's not human beings, but it's demons under the control of Satan. And Father, we're grateful that you have told us how we can be successful, that you've told us how we can stand firm. It's by putting on the whole armor of God. So help us to look at ourselves in the mirror of your word and see if we have responded and taken up and put on the whole armor of God. Help us to grow in our objective knowledge of salvation and also in our subjective knowledge of salvation so that our heads 
will be protected from Satan and his demonic cohorts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.